are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Our first reading from Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. Our second reading is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. God's love and ours. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. All right. Thanks, Donna. Well, this morning we have just this wee little theme of God's love. Of all the weeks this summer, this one felt really the most daunting to walk into. It's like doing a cannonball into the ocean was the sense I had this week in studying this topic in the Bible. When I opened my Bible and I looked at the concordance, do you know what that is? In the back of some Bibles, you'll have keywords, and it will list different references where you can find that keyword. I opened it up earlier this week and looked at all the key references of love, and I was amazed, this tiny little font, and it stretched across multiple pages of my Bible. The word love, from Genesis to Revelation, it marked all of those books, almost as if it was a visual testimony to the significance of this topic. Over the years, I have seen many of you at weddings here and there, and probably the most common scripture passage at a wedding that I've preached on is 1 Corinthians 13. That's Paul's great exposition on love. We sometimes forget that He wrote that actually in the context of spiritual gifts and love in the church rather than romantic love and what we would celebrate at weddings, though it's certainly applicable to marriage. But in that message, over the years, I've often looked at sort of popular entertainment, movies, music, books, to find this word love popping up everywhere. It's used and maybe overused. Look at our table question this morning. What do you love about summer in Minnesota, and we don't even bat an eye at it. And so sure enough, I took a look again this week to see if we could find this word popping up, and that's exactly what I found. So what's in theaters right now? Thor, love, and thunder. Thor, love, and thunder. So we've got the movie category covered. How about music? What is the name of Harry Styles' 
concert series right now. Love on Tour. I think the next shows are in August. The closest he gets here is Toronto and Chicago, so you've got to travel if you want to watch Harry Styles. And how about books? I checked out the New York Times bestseller list, and what do you know? It's in the top five. There's a book called Ugly Love. Now, what's interesting, with all due respect to those actors and artists and authors, is that that list will tell us relatively little about true love. Perhaps even more the brokenness of love than anything. Even if we throw in the children's category, I looked at the top five of the kids' books, and there it was again, the book Dragons Love Tacos. (laughs) It's there to entertain, but it won't get us too far. The question that I ask at weddings and that I'm going to ask us at the outset this morning is, what is love? It's almost as if our world is crying out to know the answer to that question. People want to know and experience and have love, but our own attempts without God are like cheap imitations. It's like doing a cannonball into a kiddie pool when you've got the ocean next door. So we're in this summer series on the attributes of God, asking what is God like, and here we are this Sunday with this topic of God's love. And I remember seeing the ocean for the first time as a kid. It was on a family road trip to Maine, I think was the end destination. And when we finally got there, we arrived at the ocean, and I was pretty little, maybe five years old or so, and I remember just seeing this expanse of water that I had never seen before in Wisconsin where I grew up, just stretching endlessly and how the sun glistened off the surface and the sound of the ocean is just unlike anything else and it was crashing in my ears. Of course, the taste of salt water that's on the wind whenever you're at the coast. And it's my hope that today in the few minutes that we have, that we can get just a little further into how wide and long and high and deep, Paul says, is the love of Christ. And that we'll discover a little bit more about the real definition of love. Let's pray as we begin our study. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we certainly don't need my words here this morning. We need to hear from you, Lord. And there is a certain trembling as we approach this topic because your love is so daunting and wonderful and beyond the limits of our knowledge. Maybe like the ocean, Lord, in that none of us can really fathom it. So we ask that you'd lead us by your Holy Spirit now to understand just a little bit more of who you are and your love. Lord, that you would open your word to our understanding that we may love and magnify you in response. This is our fervent desire. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, quick recap of the last couple weeks. We've been working our way towards this topic of love because if you remember two weeks ago, we were in the theme of God's mercy. And then last week, we talked about God's grace And you might remember how I said they're both part of the larger definition of love. Last week I shared that there's four dimensions. This doesn't come from me. This was in some reading. I thought it was right on the money. The author said there's really four dimensions of God's love. First, we've got his kindness. Then his mercy. His grace. And the fourth one is maybe the surprise. 
his persistence. You ever thought of that being a facet of God's love? And I was thinking about how important persistence is when we talk about love. So what would the story of Romeo and Juliet be like if love wasn't persistent? When Juliet says, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou my Romeo? What if he jumps in and cuts her off and he says, Ah, Juliet, this whole thing is just a little too tricky and just, just too many obstacles. Why don't we just put it behind us and move on? 1 Corinthians 13 says, rightly, that love always perseveres. In other words, another Bible word would be, love is long-suffering. Such a great word to describe God's love. That God continues to pursue us with grace and with his offer of salvation over long periods of time. Withholding judgment. I mean, we read through the Old Testament. God withholding judgment and giving grace and beckoning his people to him. Not wanting that anyone would perish. That's the persistence of his love. So we've got those four things. Kindness, grace, mercy, and persistence. And now let's give ourselves a working definition. And this is, I believe, what we'll substantiate through Scripture this morning. So here's what I came up with. God's love is his eternal giving of himself, revealed above all in the sending of his Son, who gave his life to save us from our sin. Now, let's camp out just on that first clause for a minute. Because sometimes... When we're thinking about God's love, we may only ever get as far as defining it around ourselves. Like God's love means that God loves me. But when we think about the attribute of God's love, we have to realize that it existed long before I was ever around. In fact, his love has existed eternally, long before people, long before creation, long before time itself. Love has been present In the members of the Trinity, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, these loving relationships of the triune God. So let me give an example from John 17. The founding verse of the YMCA, by the way, comes from this prayer that Jesus prays. And in the prayer, Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me. And here's the key phrase. Because you loved me before the creation of the world. God has always been loving. Then you and I came along and his love found even greater amplification is maybe how we think of it. Revealed above all in the sending of his son who gave his life to save us from our sin. So now we've got this complete picture. The total package. God's love is giving It's sending and it's saving. Or we could put it this way. Here's a shortened version of it. God's love is best seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get there a little bit more in a minute in 1 John 4. But first, I want us to look at this single verse in Isaiah 54 because I don't want to miss the Old Testament foundation of God's love. So last week we called out this false dualism that can be portrayed when people will say, well, the God of the New Testament is the God of love. But that God of the Old Testament, that's the one you got to watch out for. That's the God of judgment. But that kind of caricature is simply not true. Someone who would suggest such a thing has probably not read much of the Bible for themselves, but it's been presented in a meme or a post or a tweet 
and they run with it. But no, when we read the Bible, we see that God is a loving God from front to back of this thing. And those references in my concordance that I shared with you, half of them were from the Old Testament. And here's one of them. It's Isaiah 54.10 that we read just a moment ago. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Like the ocean, mountains are certainly among the most impressive things that we have here on earth. And if you've been to the Rockies, or you've been to the Grand Tetons, or you have stood before Denali in Alaska, or Mount Rainier in Washington, it is an awesome thing to stand before a mountain. Especially if you're a flatlander like we are here in central Minnesota. And God is saying with this picture to his people through Isaiah... He's saying, I want you to take the most substantial thing that you can think of, that being a mountain, the most imposing landmass on earth, and I want you to know, he says, that what I'm talking about is going to make that seem like nothing in comparison. That mountain might as well be shaken off like a flea compared to what? Compared to his love. That's what he's saying to his people. And the word that appears here in the Old Testament is the famous Old Testament word for love. It's the word chesed. Kind of got to make this weird sound in the back of your throat with that one. Chesed it's called. And I say famous because this is the covenant word for love. Which is why it gets translated as unfailing love. Steadfast love. Faithful love. This is an ordinary love. And we see underneath this word that God covenants with his people all through the Bible. And there are these huge milestones, especially in the story of the Old Testament. But then we get to the new. We're going to celebrate communion later. And we're celebrating the new covenant. And that's where this word comes from, this covenant love. Now, what is a covenant? Well, it's a sacred agreement, an agreement that involves God. So a covenant could be between two people. But it's always going to involve God. And even if the word covenant isn't one that we use a lot, I don't know, I think of HOA covenants or something like that would be about the only context. I think we can all imagine, just hypothetically, how weighty it would feel if you had to go before God tomorrow to make a covenant, to make some kind of an agreement. You and I would not approach such an appointment frivolously. And God is saying to his people in this passage that his covenant love for them is so steadfast that it cannot be shaken. It is so solid that it defies comparison. Mountains, he says, are not even adequate enough to picture it. And I want to ask you this morning, as you reflect on God's love, which can kind of seem real ethereal and up in the clouds, I want to ask you very concretely if you would describe how you know God in this way. Do you know his love like that? Is it that secure for you? Michelle and Max featured the Jesus Storybook Bible up here this morning. And that's like a paraphrase telling of the Bible. And there's a description in there that says that God's love is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. 
It's a refrain in that Bible. And what it's talking about is hesed, God's covenant love. And it's knowing and having and trusting in that kind of love that will give you footing when everything else in life might be fading away. Psalm 46 comes to mind. It doesn't use the word love, but it describes its effect. And here's what it says. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. In other words, he loves me. That's what the psalmist is saying. Therefore, he says, we will not fear. Though the earth give way, and those mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging, he loves me. So we've established two things so far. Number one, that God's love has always existed, shared among the persons of the Trinity. And number two, that God loves his people with an unfailing covenant love. Now let's go to that second reading in 1 John 4. And we're going to see how God's love shifts us into this command to love one another. So 1 John 4, 7 to 8, we'll just read these first couple of verses. Dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. You see the relationship? Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And you see in this very simple language that John uses how the command to love one another and its basis in God's love are connected. Let us love one another for, that means because, love comes from God. In other words, because of who God is, we get to live out life the way he calls us to live it. And John makes this point, if we do not reflect God's love, then the only logical conclusion is that we don't actually know God to begin with. And once again, he bases it on the character of God. You'll see that come up again and again. He says, because God is love. Now I want you to notice that it says God is love. It does not say love is God. Nowhere in the Bible do we see love is God, only that God is love, and there's a big difference between the two. God is love means that God is living, personal, and active. If you flip it and you say love is God, well it just gets replaced with some kind of intellectual or emotional abstraction. Love is God is just sentimental mumbo-jumbo, maybe would be the technical term. (laughs) It's just up there in the clouds. There's no substance to it. God is love is God in the flesh. God incarnate. God on the move. And that's the God of the gospel. So John is right to emphasize this, and he's going to say it again in verse 16, that exact same phrase. And we need this reminder all the more in our time because we live in an era where truth is often relativized. And all religions are just kind of lumped into one thing as if they all amount to the same thing. We need this reminder that God is love because it is a uniquely biblical statement. I. Howard Marshall says... Outside the pages of Scripture, there is no comparable picture of God. God is love. He is chesed, it would say in Hebrew. But here we're in the New Testament in Greek. It would be this word, that God is 
agape. There are other words for love in Greek, but when it's God who is in view, it's agape. It's this supernatural love of God. So John 3.16, such a well-known verse, says, For God so agaped the world. And here in this letter, we're going to find John now, say the same author, just now in his letter, saying much the same thing in these next couple of verses, verses 9 and 10. He says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So just like grace last week, we don't just get a dictionary description here, but God shows us what love looks like. And it looks like God the Father sending his Son into the world to give us life. And then the picture is backed up with the definition. That's where it says, this is love that God loved us before we ever loved him. And that he sent his Son to atone for our sins. To atone is a Bible word that means to repair or make amends. To do something right, to make up for something wrong. And when you look at the cross, and in a few minutes, when we receive communion, it's like God is saying to you, I love you, and I fixed it. I love you, and I've healed you. I've made amends. What does Jesus say from the cross? It is finished. Now sometimes people will suggest that the idea of God sending his son to the cross is cruel. You know, why would God do something like that? Couldn't he just, if he wanted to forgive sins, he could just forgive sins if he wanted to. And they'll often present these as an opposing argument to the claims of the Christian faith. And they'll say, you know, Christianity is barbaric. It's antiquated. It's oppressive. That's not a God of love. So let's ask the question, are God's love and his justice at odds with each other? I would say only if we think that God's love requires him to forgive sins without any cost. It's actually in the cross that both love and justice are maintained. And this picture of God loving us and taking the cost upon himself, paying the price for sin, is what compels us to love one another, even when the other guy doesn't deserve it. Verses 11 and 12 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, it's always based in his character and who he is. No one has ever seen God. It's talking about God the Father there. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. Isn't that a profound statement that our love makes God's love complete in us? I can barely wrap my brain around that kind of a sentence. It's like an electrical circuit that when we are loving others well, the switch is on, the circuit is closed. And loving your enemies, as Jesus says, well, I imagine then the light bulb burns all the brighter. Paul says in Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children. And that's the invitation that I give to you today. 
as we think on God's love. The message is very simple. The application looks like this. We imitate God's love by number one, loving God back, and number two, loving others the way that God loves them. And I want to finish by just reminding us of one person who clearly knew these truths. And that was our friend and brother, Scott Schramm. This dear man who went home to be with the Lord this past week. As I would visit Scott, and some of you visited him as well, over the years, over the months, as this illness progressed. You know, as you would walk into his room, you would see the progression. You would see it in his body. You would see it in his movement. You could pick it up in his speech. I want to tell you, though, what was not impacted whatsoever by that disease. His love for God and his love for people. In fact, I would say that over these last few years, those things seem to grow in Scott. You would walk into his room and there was not a complaint to be found. And I would not sugarcoat that. I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't true. You'd walk into his room and there was not a doleful expression on his face. But it was just Scott loving the Lord and loving people. I think he knew the secret of this last line and this is what I leave you with. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. I don't know how much you feel like you've got going for you today. Some of you might feel like there's a few things that are pretty haywire in your life or some unfortunate turn of events or some place that you're stuck in. But you can know and rely on the love that God has for you. Is that true of you? It can be. It can be today. There's nothing holding you back. The ocean is wide open. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for meeting us in your word this morning. And such a vast topic, Lord, I, I pray that, that also the simplicity of your love would be before us. Maybe especially, Lord, in this moment as we consider, do I know and truly rely on your love for me? I pray, Lord, that every one of us, without exception here, would wrestle with this question this morning. And Lord, would you call us to take next steps of faith, whatever that looks like. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.